Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On the program tonight, the courts have given a go-ahead to the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, but the price of building it keeps going up. Our MPs panel weighs in on the ongoing controversy over energy development. Two plane loads of Canadians evacuated from China have arrived in Canada to face two weeks of quarantine, and more are on their way. We will have the latest on the coronavirus outbreak and the government's handling of it. The Prime Minister is in Ethiopia tonight, beginning a week-long visit to Africa. We'll look at the trip and Canada's attempts to win that seat on the UN Security Council. And our journalist panel will be in with their thoughts on all of that and a rocky week for Peter McKay in the Conservative leadership race. Well, we start tonight with that announcement that the cost of expanding the Trans Mountain Pipeline has climbed to about $12.6 billion. The Trudeau government originally announced that it had purchased the existing pipeline for $4.5 billion, and it put the cost of twinning the pipeline at about $7.4 billion. But today, Finance Minister Bill Morneau announced that delays and changes to accommodate affected Indigenous populations have caused the price to increase. But he maintains that the project is still a valid one for the Canadian economy. I think what's, what's clear from what the company told us today is that the project continues to be a strong project. Uh, we, uh, we went through a due diligence process to uh, consider uh, how this would be commercially viable. This was in the range of, of considerations that we looked at. Of course, the project will deliver $1.5 billion of, uh, of available cash flow once it's finished, which means that it, uh, it remains uh, commercially viable and I think uh, very interesting for the eventual commercial buyers that we're going to be seeking because we don't intend on keeping this in uh, government hands. What, what's your timeline for selling it? You've said uh, you'll sell it when it's de-risked, but uh, when do you think that's going to be? Well, at this stage, I think, as you know, we, uh, we want to make sure that the project is able to be delivered. So uh, we are going to continue with our uh, consultations with Indigenous peoples to uh, think about how we can have a portion of the, of the uh, advantage of this project in Indigenous hands. Uh, we need to ensure that the project is, uh, is fully de-risked so that we get the, the appropriate return for Canadians. Uh, so we don't yet have a timeline, but it continues to be our goal to, uh, to put this back into the private sector, and we're looking forward to doing that. Hi, Minister. I wanted to go off topic a bit, if I could. The last time you met with your provincial counterparts, you suggested you'd have a response to them on changes to the fiscal stabilization program by January. It's February, and I don't think we have a formal answer. So why the delay, and, and when can you contemplate delivering on the promise to improve the program? In fact, we didn't uh, say that we would have the changes in January. We told uh, the provincial finance ministers that we would get back to them with a timeline for those changes, which we did. We got back to them uh, a week or so ago and, and told them that we were, we were working on that and expected to have some uh, conclusions by spring uh, 2020. So we're working on that right now. I've been in uh, const uh, constant conversations with my, with my colleagues. I spoke to both the uh, Saskatchewan Minister of Finance and the Alberta Minister of Finance today and we're looking forward to further discussions on that program. You mentioned the job numbers for Alberta, which were poor compared to other parts of the country. You say this will help, but not until 2022. Uh, there's some suggestion that the government is contemplating some sort of aid specifically for Alberta or a transition program for Alberta. Is that something that the cabinet is considering that we could see in the budget or at some other time in the near future? 
Well, a few things that you said there that, uh, that aren't quite accurate. First of all, this project is delivering jobs right now. There's almost 3,000 people that are working on this project right now on the Trans Mountain expansion, and it will peak at 5,500 uh, people. So, so there are Albertans who are at work today. Uh, yes, there are challenges in Alberta. It's, it's real. The, the, the job growth that we're seeing across the country is positive, but we do need to recognize the challenges in Alberta. The reports today were inaccurate. We are, we are looking at how we can create economic opportunity across the country, but significantly focused on Alberta and Saskatchewan. That work is ongoing. It's one of the reasons that I'm in uh, regular touch with, with people like uh, Travis, uh, who's the uh, Alberta Finance Minister. And uh, when we have more to say, we will, uh, we'll be back to you. Thank you, Minister. Uh, Maura Forrest with Politico. Have you spoken with the Indigenous-led groups that are interested in buying the pipeline about this cost increase, and, and what have they said about it? Uh, I've not had uh, any discussions with, with any of those groups uh, recently. Uh, today, obviously, we had this news from, from Trans Mountain. Uh, we see it as providing some sense of, of project certainty built off the Federal Court of Appeal decision. And I'm confident that there will continue to be significant interest in this project from both uh, Indigenous-led groups and from other groups that are interested in a, in, a, in a project that's going to deliver not only a fair price for Canadians, but a, an economically good result. And uh, do you anticipate that there could be further cost increases beyond this or further delays past 2022? I think what we heard today from the company, and remembering that it's, it's run independently, is a high level of confidence that the, the numbers that they put out, together with the, uh, the range that we've put on, on that, uh, are what they expect. And the timing, of course, uh, they've said that we should expect something around late 2022. Uh, there's always things that they, they can't necessarily predict, but that is their their uh, estimate with a high level of confidence on when we might be able to deliver this project for Canada. Well, to look at the week in federal politics, the TMX pipeline and the Prime Minister's trip to Africa, I'm joined now by three MPs from the different parties. Omar Al-Gabra is a Liberal MP from Mississauga Centre and he's a Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister. Michael Barrett is a Conservative MP for the Ontario riding of Leeds, Grenville, Thousand Islands and Rideau Lakes. And Peter Julian is the NDP MP for New Westminster, Burnaby, and he's the NDP's House Leader. All three of you, thanks for joining me. Good, good, good to be here. Can we start, uh, Omar Al-Gabra, let's start with the, what's making news today, and that is the new valuation or the new, the new cost for the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. It is now set to cost, or is now slated to cost, significantly more than it was originally estimated. Instead of $7.5, $7.4 billion, we're looking at upwards towards $13 billion. Um, what do you tell Canadians about the value they're getting for a pipeline that's going to cost so much? Uh, Martin, good to be with you. Look, let me first start off by uh, reminding you and all of our viewers about the importance of this project. Uh, we believe that it's in the national interest to expand the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, because currently today, 99% of our uh, Canadian oil is only sold to the United States. And it's really important to diversify our markets, to have access to new markets, so our producers are able to uh, uh, get mar international market prices for our product. What we did is, uh, is we intend on seeing this project built. We established an independent board of directors 
who are managing the day, uh, day operation of this project. We believe that uh, the pipeline remains viable and remains in the public interest, and we hope that it will be completed by the year 2022. Okay, uh, but just to follow up, is there a concern though, you're talking about viable and you make it no secret, the government would like to sell the pipeline eventually. Uh, is there a concern as it uh, takes on, is, as it costs more and more to build, about whether it's going to be that attractive an investment for someone to buy or whether you're going to recoup the costs at all when you do sell it to the private sector? Uh, Martin, if it was not attractive, I don't think I would be sitting here saying it's a viable project. It's a viable project because of its longevity. It's a viable project because of its uh, uh, value to Canadian markets. Markets, uh, and it's a viable project because today all the revenue that we are generating off the pipeline is being used to uh, help with transitioning to clean tech. So it, it is an important project uh, and we believe that it's in the best interest of okay. Canadians. Okay, Michael Barrett, the government says this is a totally viable and worthwhile investment. Your take on things. Well, I mean, it, uh, it obviously concerned us at the time that uh, the government decided to um, to delay and obfuscate on this, uh, on the approval of this project, it, it, you know, it, it's been approved twice, and you know, when there are government delays, regulation, uh, overregulation, and, and the added red tape, it's going to cost more money. But it's a great example of what happens when, when the government gets in the way of what the private sector was going to do really well. And so, so yes, it's going to cost more money. But that, that's why we're so concerned about what we've heard um, from the uh, from the Liberal Caucus about uh, their their open opposition and hostility to Albertans and the. Uh, and the development of the Tech Frontier project, which is, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it, it's been approved. Um, we, we've seen that the environmental standards there are, are, are rigorous. And, uh, it, it, you know, um, Albertans want to uh, get to work. This project is good for Albertans. It's good for Canadians, and Canadian energy is good for the world. So uh, it's, really, it's really important that that, that project, that Cabinet, um, you know, moves, uh, moves speedily now to, uh, to approve that project now that it has... Um, it's, it's you know, met all of the, uh, the criteria required for its approval. Okay, I want to get, we will get back to the tech project uh, with Mr. Ogabra. But uh, Peter Julian, your take on, on the TMX pipeline. Um, those who are for it say that this is just what, uh, what was foreseen. I mean, there has been some delays and uh, cost increases to accommodate local populations and accommodate environmental reviews. Well, first off, Martin, the, the private sector walked away from this project, has no interest in building it. So we're talking about taxpayers' money. And uh, we're now talking about a total bill so far of just shy of $20 billion. Uh, this is the largest fossil fuel subsidy that we've ever seen in Canadian history. Now, neither the Conservatives nor the Liberals want any sort of financial, uh, smart financial management around this. And, and the myths that they're creating, I, I think, are, are doing a real disservice uh, to Canadians. First off, the, the pipeline's already losing money. Uh, with the interest costs, it's about $150 million a year that taxpayers are having to cough up. Secondly, the differential price doesn't, isn't, uh, doesn't impact Canadian players that actually do their upgrading and refining in Canada. So the, the companies that are smart and create jobs in Alberta, for example, uh, aren't impacted by the differential. This is exporting, uh, exporting jobs, and the impacts on climate change are enormous. This is just an irresponsible project that Mr. Trudeau wants to cough up 13, 14, nearly $20 billion on. And so what we're saying is you make those kinds of investments in clean energy, you can get energy workers in Alberta back to work, for example, geothermal connected to the, the capped oil wells that we're seeing. We can get Alberta workers back to work with a smart investment that actually will be sustainable. This idea that the federal government should just shower largesse on oil and gas lobbyists makes no sense at all. And I think most Canadians, as they wake up to the increasing costs of Trans Mountain, 
mountain are becoming more and more opposed to it. Okay, I want to get to something that Michael Barrett has mentioned. Omar Algabra, we'll go back to you because the, the big talk on Parliament Hill this week and even your colleagues, Liberal colleagues, caucus colleagues were talking about it and that is the upcoming approval that your government has to decide on whether or not to give a go-ahead to another mega project another energy mega project and Michael Barrett referred to it as the tech mine in northern Alberta a multi-billion dollar project which could create a lot of jobs private sector jobs we are we're hearing reports that your caucus is itself quite divided very very deeply divided on whether or not you think the government should give the the approval or not which is due before the end of the month so where do you stand on this uh, look, Martin, this uh, project is undergoing uh, a, an environmental and economic review. Um, the cabinet has until the end of February uh, to make up its mind. Um, I, I'm not, uh, as you I would understand, I'm not able to, to share with you the discussions that we have in caucus, but I can tell you that our government is taking this proposal extremely seriously. We will do what uh, we believe is in the best interest of Canadians. Uh, so the well, process is ongoing, and um, and and I'll wait to see what cabinet decides. What about? I mean, the only reason I raise it, though, and the only reason we know about it, is that your colleagues are coming out in publicly. I just heard from uh, Adam Vaughan, who was scrummed today on it, saying he's got reservations. Speaking to another colleague, uh, Mr. McLeod from Northwest Territories, saying that you campaigned on reducing. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions and this would considerably contribute even the environmental impact study says to greenhouse gas emissions uh, yourself have you made up your mind on this project uh, look I'm not here to speak on behalf of my colleagues but I could tell you that our commitment to uh, taking climate action is solid uh, we are the first government in Canada's history who's developed and implemented a climate action plan we put a pl uh, price on on pollution and we are committed in the last campaign to achieving a net zero by 2050 and that commitment remains in place and remains intact have you made up your mind on it uh, I'm uh, gonna wait till uh, cabinet examines all the evidence before it and I have full confidence that they will make the right decision okay Ma Michael Barrett there's been some suggestions from the minister from the environment minister uh, Jonathan Wilkinson that if the project is given a go-ahead it would also be in the framework of a re uh, reaching Alberta reaching a net uh, zero emissions target for 2050, uh, what do you make of it? Well, I, I mean, uh, those conversations are ones that have to happen between, uh, between Premier Kenny and, uh, uh, and the, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister and, uh, and you know, uh, the, the province's take on, on, on more standards uh, or, or more regulatory burdens uh, above and beyond um, the, uh, the federal carbon tax is, um, you know, it's concerning. We, we, have great re we have great concerns about the existing carbon tax. So creating more regulation uh, in the face of, an, uh, of, you know, a tremendous opportunity for, for uh, the most um, environmentally uh, friendly uh, and sustainable project um, that we're going to see anywhere in the world developed uh, as far as resource development um, that we're seeing with uh, this tech project. Um, it, you know, this shouldn't be something that gives the government an opportunity to, to dig deeper into Canadians' pockets or to make it harder to do business. Um, this is a project that um, has gone through the approval processes that, that Omar mentioned, and, it, and, it's, uh, and it's met the criteria. So Cabinet has a very, a very straightforward job in front of it, and that's to do what is in the national interest, and that's to approve this project and let, uh, let the private sector create those jobs, let uh, Albertans get back to work. It's good, it's good prosperity for, um, for Alberta, for Canada, and it's, uh, it's the right decision um, for everyone.
Uh, Peter Julian, this is a project that got an environmental approval from or an assessment and was given to go ahead. Uh, and I believe that approval was started under the NDP government of Rachel Notley in Alberta. What do you make of whether the project should go go ahead or not? It would be private money. It wouldn't be government money, and it would be creating jobs. Well, all, all of these projects are subject to massive subsidies, and that that's uh, why we have said that we have to uh, eliminate fossil fuel subsidies. The 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 idea that these projects stand on their own, uh, I, I I think that would have that would be a different debate. But in every case, we're talking about fossil fuel subsidies. Now, in the case of, of this particular project, it will substantially increase greenhouse gas emissions. So the, the question is this, do we actually believe that we are in a climate emergency? Now, conservatives and liberals like to pay lip service to this, but the reality is, as we heard this week in the Finance Committee, the cost now in terms of the economy, and the catastrophic incidences related to climate change is now uh, upwards of $10 billion a year in Canada. The number of jobs we could create if we reduced greenhouse gas emissions and transition to clean energy uh, would mean that uh, we would have a much more prosperous economy and we would be actually taking that leadership internationally on climate change. So uh, the, the fact that there is no debate among the old parties about whether or not we should actually make these investments in clean energy, get Alberta energy workers back to work in clean energy projects, uh, it just shows how vacuous the response from Ottawa is. Okay. We're in a climate emergency, we need to make the investments now. I want to wrap up on something we said we would talk about, and that is the Prime Minister, as we speak, is in Ethiopia. He's in Addis Ababa. Uh, Omar Al-Gabra, almost a week of uh, visits to Ethiopia and to Senegal. He's going to be speaking with leaders at the African Union Summit. Um, he obviously has made no secret that you were lobbying for this position on the UN Security Council, a seat at the UN Security Council. What do you think? Uh, how do you rate Canada's chances of securing that seat on the UN Security Council? Uh, look, Martin, let me just say that the Prime Minister is doing uh, what he does best on the world stage, which is representing Canada and Canadians' interests. Africa uh, has some of the fastest growing economies in the world. We have an agenda of diversifying our trade, of enhancing uh, trade opportunities for Canadian businesses. And this is a, a, a summit where the heads of states of African unions are going to, African Union members are going to be there. The Prime Minister is going to be there to advocate on behalf of Canadian and Canadian workers uh, and, and also Canadian values. So this is a great opportunity to wave the Canadian flag by uh, someone who uh, is highly respected around the world. Uh, Michael Barrett, the uh, Premier, former Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, your former leader, was not that enthusiastic about the UN, and in fact, he pulled Canada's bid out when it appeared that we were not going to win our attempt to get a, the last time we tried for a seat on the UN Security Council. Where does your party stand now on terms of whether the Prime Minister should be lobbying for this and whether we should have a seat on the UN Security Council? Well, look, the, the Prime Minister's uh, attempt at a uh, international reputation rehab is, um, you know, uh, it, it's all happening um, at, at a great cost to the taxpayers. So it will, Canadians will get little, but it will cost them a lot for, for the Prime Minister um, to engage in uh, engage in this activity. We haven't we haven't had good good results, and we've had a lot of embarrassment from uh, the Prime Minister's. Uh, um, excursions abroad in, in, in a lot of cases and so um, we know that uh, Canada is, uh, is poorly positioned to secure uh, this seat under this current administration and what, what the Prime Minister and this government should be focused on and what we're going to do as the uh, official opposition, we're going to hold them to account on a strong foreign policy um, that, that is rooted in uh, the values that, uh, that, that were part of the foundation of uh, the United Nations. And so 
um, you know, looking to, uh, to, to win some kind of international popularity contest is not what the Prime Minister should be engaged in. And, uh, and frankly, um, he'd, he'd be, uh, Canadians would be uh, perhaps better served uh, if, uh, if he didn't um, Mark, take Okay, Peter, Peter Gillian, a last word to you. We're almost out of time. Your take on the Prime Minister's bid and Canada's bid for uh, UN Security Council. Well, it's the, it's the Liberal government making the bid. I, I think the, the problem is the difference between the government's rhetoric and its actual work. And so the selling of arms to Saudi Arabia, uh, that is one example of something that undermines, I think, Canada's credibility. Uh, the whole issue around uh, climate leadership, when so many countries around the world are taking climate leadership. Uh, we've got a, a, a prime minister who's building pipelines and climate leaders can't be building all these pipelines with public funds. So we've got this difference between the, the government's view of itself and how other countries view the direction this liberal government's taking and I think that'll be a major detriment to his campaign to try to get the government on the, on the Security Council. Okay, all three of you, I want to thank you very much. I want to wish you a, a productive weekends if you're going back to your riding and safe travels. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Well, as we mentioned earlier, one of the big news stories in federal politics as the week ends is the new price tag for building the Trans Mountain Pipeline, a project owned by the Canadian taxpayers, you and I. The construction cost, originally pegged at about $7.4 billion, is now estimated to be at least $12.6 billion. To look at the economics of the TMX pipeline expansion, what today's announcement might mean, I'm joined now by Kent Fellows. He's a research associate in energy and environment at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. He's joining us now from Calgary. Uh, Mr. Fellows, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Um, okay, well, first and foremost, someone who's followed this project and knows the economy, uh, the economics of it all, uh, what do you make of today's uh, new figure? So I think the, the magnitude was a little bit surprising to me. Um, I did expect to see a cost increase. That's just the nature of, uh, you know, there's delay, and so there's costs associated with that. And there's also costs associated with uh, with some of the accommodations made through the uh, engagement process there, the consultation process. Uh, and so these are all important things that have to go into the, the project. It's why you do the consultation and why they had to redo the consultation. Uh, and it does mean increased costs. So this is kind of at the upper end of, of what I expected. The magnitude's a little bit bigger, but the direction is definitely, uh, I think everyone expected. Okay, uh, cost. I'll ask the next question. Could we be seeing, is there a possibility of a further cost increase? They're saying that this project is only forecast to be finished in December of 2022. Could we see a possible further cost increases? So they're building in additional contingency funds as well, and that's part of this cost increase. Okay. Um, so I, I don't think we'd see one, certainly not anything of this magnitude uh, forward, because we are now through most of the regulatory and legislative hurdles. So there may be a couple of small overruns here and there. Uh, they may be able to, to have some lower costs in some areas. I wouldn't expect another big increase after this. Okay, I guess one of the big questions that people have, and it's a, it's a political question, so it's also an uh, economic question, that is what does this mean for the viability of the final twinned pipeline? For example, the government says it would like to eventually sell this off to the private sector. Uh, do you think there's a market for it? And do you think there's a chance that the government will get its money back for it? I think there is a market, and I think that the government should do fairly well on the resale. Um, you know, what that means in terms of exactly what they paid, I, I don't know. Um, but the thing about pipelines in Canada is this is a regulated industry. Uh, so they're constrained on what they can charge in terms of the tolls. But the uh, National Energy Board, now the Canadian Energy Regulator, uh, put a lot of time and effort into making sure that a pipeline operator is whole. 
so they constrain what they can charge so, so that they're not allowed to abuse monopoly power, but at the same time, the whole regulatory process behind the tolling is set up to make sure that the pipelines are viable on an ongoing basis. And, and this toll methodology was approved in 2012 uh, to accommodate uh, cost increases such as this. So even though it's a big magnitude increase, I'm not concerned about that. Okay, maybe you can enlighten us on this. I know that, I mean, obviously we're talking about the twinning of the pipeline, but there is also the existing pipeline. And I've, I've seen reports over the last, say, year that this pipeline, the existing pipeline, is making money. Uh, what kind of order of magnitude uh, is the federal government already getting from the existing pipeline that is, that is transporting uh, crude? So the existing pipeline more or less has a pretty stable rate of return because of that regulatory structure. Uh, and I haven't looked at what the exact number is, but it's it's what the CER would, would deem a fair rate of return. So uh, given the risk of, of inherent in the pipeline, uh, the, the pipeline operator is entitled to that and that's what they earn. Uh, the downside right now is the way it's regulated, they're not allowed to use any of those revenues to offset the cost on the expansion. So the expansion, because it's not in service yet, because it hasn't been finished, that is losing money. Uh, long term, once it comes into service, you'll make that money back. That's the expectation, uh, and that's the way the regulation is set up. Um, but, but right now, on the whole, the project doesn't look that good. If you split it up into its parts, the existing pipeline is doing just fine, as it has been for decades, uh, because it's got that very stable regulated uh, tolling methodology that gives it that stable rate of return. Okay, I don't know if anyone because we have heard reports and the finance minister has expressed interest in trying to find, in, we've talked about buyers in general, but he's also said that they would be very interested in having potentially, if not a whole buyer, at least uh, part ownership of uh, Indigenous Canadians, uh, any sort of consortium or group of Indigenous uh, entrepreneurs who might be interested. Have we heard anything more about that? Uh, I haven't heard any specifics, but it, it is a topic of conversation uh, that, that has surrounded this pipeline expansion uh, even before the federal government got involved. Um, you know, there were there were First Nations organizations that were interested in taking an equity stake. So I think that's a very likely possibility, but uh, I'm not aware of any specifics at, at the current time. Okay, here's the question for those of us who don't know a lot about pipelines and haven't been following a lot. We've always talked about getting Canada's crude and bitumen to uh, Tidewater. If this pipeline twinning, so in other words, this increased capacity, is only going to come online in December 2022, um, it, it, it just is, is kind of surprising because the politicians talk about it as if there's an urgency and if it's going to be an immediate fix. We're already talking two years down. What in the meantime? Because I know Rachel Notley, for example, had tried to get fleets of more rail cars. What, what's going to take up the slack in the meantime? Well, I think you'll continue to see uh, uh, reliance on rail. What this decision does and, and what the certainty around the pipeline expansion does is it creates that uncertainty or that in, uh, that certainty for investors upstream uh, who are looking at, at projects with long lead times. Uh, you know, we talk about the day-to-day -day or even the hour-to-hour -hour price of oil, but investment decisions are made on very long-term uh, uh, strategies for this. So between now and then, I think we'll see some movement and there will be continued reliance on, on rail in whatever form that, that takes. Uh, I think uh, the Alberta government will have to think seriously about its curtailment policy uh, that they put in place to, to give that bump in, in local prices to make sure that the cash flows of some of these firms are secure. Um, but it's, it's definitely an ongoing story. Uh, I, I don't think anyone is or should be popping champagne corks uh, in Calgary right now uh, because we are still waiting to see. And as you said, 2022 sounds like a very long way away, uh, but it'll come uh, fast for people who are making multi-decade investment decisions. Okay. Well, Kent Fellows, I want to thank you very much for speaking with us and we'll keep in touch. Uh, thanks for your comments.
My pleasure. Well, as we mentioned, two plane loads of Canadians have now arrived at the Canadian Forces Base in Trenton, Ontario. And you'll see images of the first plane arriving in the dark early this morning, on Friday morning. On board were 176 Canadian citizens or permanent residents. Now this afternoon, a second plane load containing 39 more Canadians arrived in Trenton. For the next 14 days, they will be housed under strict quarantine, isolated from each other in a hotel-like residence, with their health being monitored and tested daily for possible signs of the novel coronavirus. In Ottawa, Foreign Affairs Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne talked about the third plane loan of Canadians, which is being chartered to bring them to Ottawa. And he was also asked about Canadians quarantined on board two cruise ships, one moored off the coast of Japan and a second in Hong Kong Harbour. We have the second plane coming that the Chinese authorities have already given a green light to that. For the second plane, is that going to be every single Canadian that has asked for help? Well, we, from the beginning, we said we would have uh, a first Canadian plane. We said also that we would be uh, looking with allies if there were other seats. That's what we did. That's how we can say we have two-thirds of Canadians now back in Canada. Uh, with respect to the second Canadian plane, we had already scheduled that plane because we understood that there would be... Uh, there would still be uh, Canadians uh, in China who want to be repatriated. So we are now working on the logistics, uh, uh, building the manifest. And it's quite a good thing that we have a bit of time in between because it really allows us to make sure that we contact every family, make sure that everyone who wants to get on board can have their name on the manifest, make sure that we work the logistics on the ground to make sure they can go to the airport. Just an update on the boat in English in terms of Canadians. Well, the boat, we have the one in Japan. As you know, we have 255 Canadians. Uh, based on the latest information I've received, we have seven Canadians which have tested positive uh, for the coronavirus. So we're in touch with consular officials to make sure that they receive all the assistance. Obviously, the primary caregivers are the health authorities in Japan. Uh, we have been in touch with them. We've been in touch with the, the company to make sure they receive all the assistance uh, they need. And we'll continue to be in touch with them. It's nighttime now in Japan. And for the one in Hong Kong, uh, the latest information I had was that we had 30 passengers on that boat, 30 Canadians. We're in touch with them as well to provide them consular assistance. Are we thinking assistance. about any kind of restrictions in terms of on sea? I, I mean, we've been so fixated on people coming through the airports, but are we thinking about anything else as we look at cases ramp up? Well, as you know, the uh, the local authorities are the ones which are responsible uh, to decide uh, the uh, best measures that they can implement locally, and obviously the government of Canada is following up with them to make sure that everyone is safe. Merci tout le monde. Well, Prime Minister Trudeau is in Addis Ababa today on the first day of a trip to Africa and to Germany next week. In this first stage of his trip, Justin Trudeau will be meeting with the Prime Minister and the President of Ethiopia, as well as with other leaders gathered there for the summit of the countries of the African Union. The government says that the Africa trip will focus on strengthening economic ties between Africa and Canada. And the Prime Minister also makes no secret that he uh, hopes that the meetings over the next few days with African countries will help secure their support for Canada's bid to win a seat at the United Nations Security Council. Today in Addis Ababa, traveling with the Prime Minister, the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, Ahmed Hussein, spoke with reporters. My presence here is, is, of course, you know, it'll help uh, in that campaign, but it's beyond that as well. I mean, for the last number of years in my previous role as immigration minister, uh, I did a lot of work in Africa to uh, boost our presence here uh, in terms of our immigration personnel and to improve processing and really um, tap into uh, talent, 
uh, skills and talent here uh, to benefit uh, our Canadian, uh, to grow our Canadian economy and create jobs and opportunities for Canadians. Um, we were able to move forward on a number of initiatives like the Student Direct Stream that, uh, that have uh, that will uh, streamline uh, Moroccan and Senegalese uh, international students to come and study in Africa and boost our francophone immigration. Uh, in that process, I was able to visit a number of African countries, nine uh, over the last number of years, and build a lot of relationships with leaders. And that will help uh, our government now as we are here and help the Prime Minister as we move our Canadian agenda uh, connecting with African priorities, not just with the Security Council, but with trade, with uh, uh, you know, women and girls, with uh, climate change, and, uh, and, and, uh, and a more Canadian innovative approach to uh, international there, development. There are many who say that Canada's engagement with Africa has been too slow and it's far too late, and that you're sort of coming in now because you need the votes. I, I completely disagree. If they look at uh, the engagements that we've had uh, since coming into, into government, uh, Minister Gould has been uh, you know, here, uh, so have I over the last number of years, Minister Ng, Minister uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne. Uh, we've, we've been engaged in Africa, uh, we've been building those relationships, we've been deepening the already uh, strong people-to-people -people ties, we've been, uh, you know, making sure that the immigration processing and the attraction of talent and, 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 and students and tourism and business travelers uh, was, was done better by increasing our footprint in Africa and making sure that we do immigration processing better here. We've been doing a lot of work over the last number of years, this is a continuation of that work. It's not like uh, we were absent and we're showing up uh, uh, now that, that, that nothing could be further from the truth. What's, what's, your, role? Role? what's, what's your role? Like you said, it's part of your role in the yeah. Security Council. What's your role in the Security Council? What uh, well, it's, you know, it, it's a campaign. It's a campaign. Uh, th there's uh, there's uh, many votes in Africa and we, we are here to, uh, uh, as part of our visit is, of course, to campaign for uh, the Security Council. Canada's presence at the Security Council will be a force for good. There are many uh, small and developing countries that look to Canada for leadership on climate change, on, uh, on girls' education, on peace and security, on a progressive trade, on uh, an, an international rules-based order. Uh, all those countries will benefit uh, if we are successful in our campaign for the Security Council. And I think it means a lot to many African countries for Canada to be in that position. That's the case that we'll make. I'm joined now by David Hornsby. He's a professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. First of all, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. You have spent a lot of time in Africa. You know the continent and you also know Canadian politics. I wonder, as you watch this trip, what are you watching for, uh, and specifically the angle of our bid for the UN Security Council seat? What are you watching for? Well, I think we can look at this from a number of different angles. One is obviously having a prime ministerial visit to uh, the African continent, namely to two particular African partners, Ethiopia and Senegal, is an important signal. Uh, it's an important signal about how what the prime minister's foreign policy priorities are or what he aspires them to be. Um, the other piece of this is the sort of the pure crass politics of it and the crass politics of the moment, namely Canada's bid for the UN Security Council seat. And I think what we're seeing here is Canada making a really explicit effort to try and win over African uh, states um, mm -hmm. for the votes that are necessary for Canada to try and secure the seat. So let's get to the pure crass politics because the Prime Minister's office didn't even deny it when they issued a press release saying this is, you know, we are going to be working hard to try to secure our bid for a UN Security Council seat. First of all, the African Union, 
54 countries. 54 countries. Mm -hmm. uh, will, do they vote as a bloc? So no, they certainly don't vote as a bloc, but what they do is they do tend to act in a coordinated way. Okay. They realize the power and influence they have in this moment with respect to the bid for the UN Security Council seat, and they're quite willing to act in a coordinated way to try and sort of influence the, uh, the players as much as possible. Mm -hmm. The big question I have in this moment is whether or not Canada is actually too late uh, to this in endeavor. We have Ireland, we have Norway who have been have been coveting this chair for the last 10 years and making explicit efforts and entreaties to African partners, while Canada's been actually pulling back from the continent. That is the other question. Some people have suggested that this is the first time Canada has launched a bid for this UN Security Council seat when there have already been two strong candidates in the category Europe and other countries mm -hmm. uh, that we've never tried for a bid when we already know that there's at least two other strong contenders. Is this Was this a potentially a bad calculation on Canada's part? Well, I think you can look at it in two ways, right? One would be um, that, you know, last-ditch effort, let's see if we can uh, cash in on the sort of the cachet mm -hmm. of Canada, the historical goodwill that Canada maintains on the continent, although I would say that's diminishing very quickly. The other angle that you could look at this from is that there's actually just been a pure miscalculation, a pure misunderstanding of Canada's influence mm -hmm. and its position as uh, a key partner on the African continent. And I, I'm more tending to the latter, that there was a misunderstanding okay. that went into this. One of the things that's brought up is that you have Ireland that is, is says it's going to try and get 2.7% of its, uh, its, its economy in terms of foreign aid. You have Norway, which is already at 1% of its, uh, of its GDP in terms of foreign aid. Canada is lagging behind at about 0.3%. But a lot of Canadian officials say it's not that simple. We have a lot of very dynamic relationships with African countries. And there's also foreign direct investment. What about the investment angle? Well, I think the investment angle is probably being overstated. Canada contributes less than 1% of, foreign, of the total foreign direct investment to the, all of the continent. We aren't a big player on that score. Where I would suggest the investment piece matters is in particular bilateral relationships or uh, company to country relationship. Okay. And that sort of fits into the interests of Canada. The, the piece here though as well that we have to look at is development assistance. Um, Canada for you know, the last 25 years has been an inconsistent partner with development assistance. I would say, I would suggest as of late we're getting a little bit better in terms of having countries of focus mm -hmm. and being committed to them for the long term. You know, uh, Africa accounts for 40% of our uh, official development assistance envelope, but I think it's too early to tell yet about whether or not that strategy is being successful because over the last 10 years, it's chopped and changed our, our partners. Um, there's also the reference to making, calling for affection for Canada because of our immigration policies and because of our affiliation with the Francophonie and the Commonwealth. What do you make of that, uh, having lived for more than a decade in Africa? Having, yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the, the pieces that I really struggle with uh, most significantly is, you know, this, this uh, imagery that we project of ourselves as being an open nation, one being that's uh, a sort of collaborative partner with, uh, with African countries, uh, particularly on the immigration score, I think, you know, we have to be pretty honest with ourselves. It's not that easy to come to Canada, and it's not that easy for immigrants when they do get here. And that translates back. The trans-societal links between our countries mm. matter in this moment. When, and when we have uh, new migrants to Canada uh, speaking uh, with their families back home and saying, oh, I, was, you know, I thought it was going to be better than it actually is, then that's, that is a real problem. And that is actually happening. Um, is it as simple as just looking at the African bloc? And we've already 
just as, you know, asserted that it's not a bloc and they won't necessarily vote the 54 countries in a bloc. Uh, there's also a Middle Eastern uh, bloc of votes or a number of countries. Uh, we've heard reports that Saudi Arabia, for example, is lobbying against Canada. Uh, wh where do you put Canada's chances? Uh, I know we're not UN experts, but where do you put Canada's chances? I mean, I think, you know, to be honest, Martin, I'd be really surprised if Canada was successful in its bid. Uh, precisely for these reasons. I don't think we're going to carry much sway with uh, the African countries, African bloc. Uh, when we have Saudi Arabia acting as it is, as a sort of an antagonist against mm -hmm. uh, the Canadian bid, uh, that diminishes our, our capacity in really significant ways. We currently also have uh, some irritants with China, another important player in an Asian region, mm -hmm. region right? So I think we have to look at this moment and, and I think be realistic. As a specialist in international affairs, there is the other bigger question, in, and that is, what does this matter? Does it matter? I mean, we saw the Harper government when they withdrew the bid for the UN security seat, and Mr. Harper himself was fairly adamant in suggesting that the UN, this was not the, that important. Well, I think, I think it's a big deal. I mean, I think it, particularly in this moment where we, we have a prime minister and a government that for the last four years have continually touted the idea that Canada's back right. on an international stage. Um, I think what we're seeing here is the fruits of that effort um, not bearing much, in part because we haven't invested in the way we needed to in our foreign relationships. If I can just draw yep. on a, a perfect example of that, you know, the African continent, 54 countries, we have 15 diplomatic missions. Um, you know, we know when we want to have uh, collaboration in a multilateral sphere, we've got to have those political relationships. And when we're not, when we don't even have diplomatic uh, representation on the ground all the time in spaces, it's hard to cultivate that. Politi politically, is this a black eye if we don't get the bid? Because, I mean, countries regularly do their lobbying, do this effort. We're going to spend, uh, reportedly, $2 million at least in this lobbying effort. Is it a political black eye? Or someone suggested on a panel here on CPAC yesterday, people are not going to not vote for a government because they did or didn't get a UN Security Council seat. I mean, I think, I don't want to overstate it. I no. mean, I think, you know, obviously this wouldn't be a good reflection on Canada to not get it. But, I mean, at the end of the, you know, does that mean the, the end of Canada as a middle power or as a multilateral country or as a G7 nation or playing any important role mm -hmm. in the United Nations? No. We can move beyond it. But I, what I think, what I hope will happen in the event that we do not win the Security Council seat, that there will be an honest reflection that we'll sit back, we'll think, okay, what do we need to do in order to re return ourselves to the standing that we once had? Uh, and I think that will require significant resources. And for the, f for the African continent, because another thing that comes up is that Canada's feminist foreign policy, and a lot of people point to the fact that, uh, that development aid and foreign policy that's oriented towards a feminist foreign policy, that that has a lot of uh, positive impact in Africa. What does Canada need to do to improve, boost, or revive its relations, uh, diplomatic relations with Africa? Well, I think we normally look at these, these diplomatic relationships from three particular pillars, right? The political, the economic, and the, uh, the, the, the oh, I forget the uh, third one right now, the trans-societal, okay. excuse me. Uh, and what I would suggest is in those three pillars, right, we have to do, we have to do better. We need to be engaging more with African states mm -hmm. uh, on a political level. That means more diplomacy more face-to-face -face interactions. On the economic level, we have to start investing and encouraging Canadian companies to be, get involved in African economies. And we know that stands to be of our benefit because some of the fastest growing economies are on the African yeah. continent. And then on the trine societal, we have to do better with the people-to-people -people linkages. And that means, on one level, being more welcoming and inclusive here uh, as we welcome migrants from the African continent, yeah. but then also helping resolve particular trans uh, societal issues 
on, uh, on the African continent as well. Okay. And I can add one, a fourth sure. one, because yep. I've remembered now, security. Security, yeah. The peacekeeping piece, I can't underscore. Mm -hmm. um, the peacekeeping piece, you know, we used to be uh, involved in many different spaces on the African continent. We've just withdrawn from uh, Mali after a very short stint, and we really don't have much else happening. But we know that there is a need, mm -hmm. right? We know that there are other peacekeeping missions taking place on the continent, and it would be important for us to engage as a means of, of renewing and reinvigorating that relationship. Professor Honesby, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Well, to look at the week in federal politics, I'm joined now by three members of the Parliamentary Press Gallery. Teresa Wright is a parliamentary reporter for the Canadian Press. Michelle Carbert is a political reporter for the Globe and Mail. And Bruce Campion-Smith writes for the Toronto Star. All three of you, thanks for coming in. Nice to see you. Let's start with the TMX announcement today because it did, you know, did take some people by surprise. We now have a, a, a price tag on the construction, on the expansion, which is about $12.6 billion, so significantly more expensive. Um, I'm just wondering, wherever you want to go with this, well, what, where does this leave the issue and then the wider issue of energy policy and energy expansion? I'll start with you, uh, Bruce. Yeah, so it was certainly, it caps kind of a significant week for the project. We had the, the federal court, uh, court of Appeal ruling earlier in the week that kind of cleared away yeah. some very significant legal obligations and, uh, or, or roadblocks to the project. And that was very significant because if the court had gone the other way, you know, this project conceivably might have been dead in the water. And so now it's in the, today's, you know, uh, announcement of the higher price tag, you know, the government now in for a penny, in for another $5 billion, it seems. And yeah. so while not unexpected, and indeed kind of the executive leadership of the project was trying to say, even if this was still in private hands, the bill would be the same. Yeah. You know, we, we saw the finance minister up today having now to defend it. You know, this is in their public, you know, and it's, it's going to raise kind of questions of, of, of management of the project um, and that they're going to have to wear. Yeah. Michelle, uh, your reactions to where it goes from here or, or the increased price tag? or This should be no surprise to anyone. Going to court this many times for a large project like this is yeah. going to cost money. As well brought up on this phone call was, was the increase in cost of steel. So, you know, the, it, you know, items, pro products just go up over time. And on yeah. top of that, having all of these legal battles, this is becoming not only a very expensive proj project in terms of finances, but politically expensive for this government yeah. as well. And not to mention, there's also the Tech Mine project that we're keeping an eye on towards the end of February, That will whether that will be approved. Yeah. So there's a lot riding in the province of Alberta right now where the Liberal government has no representation. And they've got, you know, just a few weeks to figure out how they're going to handle this. The interesting thing that came out of hearing again about the TMX was actually the confirmation of when it's actually going to be in service, which is December 2022. So it's not even December of this year, but it's a, it's almost two years from now. Um, Teresa, what do you make of it? Where do you think this whole thing is going with the energy policy? Well, I think, you know, when, when you see a bigger price tag, what, whether or not you can say that it was expected, which of course a lot of people were saying it would be expected, yeah. but, you know, now they have to make the case to voters, make the case to taxpayers that this was a good investment and will continue to be a good investment. And, you know, I think we all heard from voters um, during the election people saying that they wanted to see uh, more uh, you know better climate policies from all of the the, the political uh, leaders and when Justin Trudeau and the Liberals were trying to defend their environmental policy a lot of people said okay but you also bought a pipeline and now that pipeline is a lot more expensive than we thought it was going to be so that's that's going to be a tricky one for them. And Michelle t alluded to it because we're getting to it and then there's also this other many people have said if Trans Mountain seemed like a very controversial political 
gambit. Now we have the decision that's got to be made before the end of the month on the tech mine, which is a mega, another large oil sands development, which the government's got to decide yes or no whether it goes forward on. Uh, weigh in on that, Bruce. Um, yeah, we mean, heard a lot of reports from caucus, from Liberal caucus this week that they are really wrestling with this one. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a no-win uh, situation for them because, you know, as Teresa noted, you know, yeah. there was already this debate about buying the pipeline. And yet, trying to you know, advocate for you know zero emissions, you know a greener government, and now you know they have to approve a, an oil sands yeah. project, and, and at a time when you know the country is already somewhat fractured east-west around kind of you know Alberta's feeling very isolated because the economic troubles already with depressed oil prices, and if now if they if this project is not approved, they'll see themselves as as further isolated from decision makers in Ottawa. So it's it's it, you know, and then of course to go the other way, you have those in cabinet Quebec that that do not want this project yeah. to go ahead. And Michelle, as you said, this has been made almost now a litmus test where you have the, the, the provincial premier, uh, Jason Kenney, and his energy minister saying this is a test of whether you believe uh, in confederation and in federalism. And even if the government chooses to not approve this pi this project, um, then th it's still going to be put in a very difficult position because there's now discussion. We've seen reports of a potential support fund yeah. for Alberta, and that's going to cost them. So whether they choose the environmental costs of mm -hmm. um, you know approving this project or they choose to not do that and and provide the support, it's expensive for Ottawa, and they're already running deep deficits. It, you know, there's no plan to get to balance, and that's really going to dog them if they have to go back to the polls in a minority government situation. Okay, I want to ask, uh, I want to move to another subject, because this is one that we're watching, obviously, because the Prime Minister is out of country. He's in Africa. He's there for almost a week until he wraps up his trip in Munich at the security conference, but he's making a round, and he's meeting with African Union countries. He's meeting with African leaders. I'll start with you, Teresa. I mean, obviously, he's unabashed saying the pitch is openly I'm there to try and sell and try and win people over for our bid to have a UN Security, uh, Security Council seat. What do you make of it? Well, he's certainly putting a lot of personal political capital on the line uh, in terms of, of this bid. And it's I think it's a bit surprising given the fact that all the experts that you talk to will say that this is a long shot for Canada. You know, yeah. we weren't, uh, we were very, um, you know, we're behind in this process. Uh, Norway and Ireland have already been, um, you know, doing a lot of the groundwork yeah. for years before Canada has already joined on this, in, you know, in this uh, race. And so, uh, you know, obviously uh, Trudeau hopes that he can get as many of those 54 um, votes from Africa as he can, but um, you know it, it is going to be a long shot. I mean, that's really the way to frame it. This is a very high-stakes game that the prime minister is playing. He's putting a lot of his pr political prestige in that, trying to win over that uh, that uh, UN Security Council seat. This has been something he has been campaigning for now for almost five years. They yeah. ran on this in the 2015 election. They were kind of late to the game in getting the campaign started. They spent just under $2 million on the campaign. It's, it's pennies in, in comparison to the federal budget. But yeah. I agree with what Teresa is saying, that the personal political capital and the Trudeau brand is on the line here. And it really isn't looking good. Most mm -hmm. experts that you speak to are saying that we are in the fight for second place with Ireland. Norway is a well-respected, well-regarded country within the United Nations that has deep ties in Africa has been doing a lot more engagement over the yeah. last two years. And Canada also has to be careful when it goes to the this AU summit and to Senegal, which country, which leaders um, he, Mr. Trudeau will be meeting on the sidelines. There's a number of dictators in yeah. the continent. And how is he going to navigate, you know, upholding our respect for human rights and putting pressure on those countries while also seeking their vote? Bruce, I'll be the devil's advocate. Some people say, why has it gotten to the point where the prime minister is, is, is wagering a 
considerable amount of his personal prestige or brand, as you say, on, on, a, on a venture which is not looking very likely uh, and one that can cost him when this is not necessarily a vote getter when it comes election time. It's not, but I, I guess from a, you know, if, you know, liberals, of course, in the first campaign, you know, campaign on the, on the notion that we're back. And yeah. so I guess, you know, this would be a logical extension and why, you know, why give up? You know, who knows? But yeah. I think, you know, as Teresa and Michelle noted, you know, Canada seems to have come, it's a little bit, it's a, too little too late, you know, yeah. that, that Ireland in particular has been very active on this file. And I think just even, there's something odd, you know, about the optic of going to Africa in this way when, you know, this, it, the, the continent's been off the radar screen for this government throughout yeah. much of its first mandate. You know, the Prime Minister only made yeah. one trip there and that was to Mali just before Christmas to visit with the Canadian forces who were there on a peacekeeping mission. Yeah. You know, the, the government has not really delivered on the, its peacekeeping commitments. Ireland, for example, has more than 500 troops, yeah. you know, deployed on UN missions. You know, Canada has 48, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so that's a bit of a telling and, and so you wonder just, I wonder about his reception when he's there. Will, will people kind of see through the veneer of just kind of vote getting or see a sincere mm -hmm. commitment? You know. Let's bring it back home to something which we all watch because whenever we get this free moment, it's taken up by speculation about the Conservative leadership uh, campaign. This was an interesting week because we saw uh, it was a week when Peter McKay uh, sort of had a show of muscle in putting down the $300,000 required just to prove that he it's sort of a show of force that he's got all the money uh, to prove that he is he's ready to run for the leadership race. He paid off all of those fees and charges before necessary uh, and yet he had a fairly rocky week in terms of th in terms of how things went. Teresa your reflections on it's, it's a little bit baffling, really, because I think that a lot of people, when they heard that you know Peter McKay was in the race, um, you know, and and seeing how strong he came out of the gate in terms of getting the signatures, getting the money that he needed, um, for him to to make these sort of rookie mistakes, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you know the the interview with CTV where, you know, he, there's questions about his his tweets about uh, Trudeau's yoga expenses, he cut off the interview, his, his staffers did, he could have stopped that them from doing that. He could have said, no, you know what, yeah. I'm I'm prepared to answer these questions it's not as though it's the first time that he's faced you know tough questions yeah. uh, from media or from the national media um, and kind of waffling on uh, the the position of uh, the uh, the um, uh, embassy in, in, yeah, um, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem so I think it's it's just surprising um, I'm not entirely sure if it's really gonna hurt him though I mean I think he's considered to be uh, a front-runner um, whether these things are gonna matter to the membership because that's of course who he has to get votes from right now yeah. we'll have to wait and see Michelle thoughts on Peter McKay's week I would <laughs> urge him to and I don't give out advice to politicians but you know just based on how this week has gone it's been looking like he's taking a little bit of advantage of, of where he's at cutting off the media after an interview on an issue that had people riled up um, is, is difficult to navigate uh, from a PR perspective but you know he um, he, you know, he's got to watch out for other names that could still throw throw their names into the race. John Baird being one of them. We're okay. seeing speculation about that. He's somebody who could get the, those signatures and that money together like this. Mm -hmm. No problem. He's got wide-ranging support if he was willing to seek it. And don't underestimate Aaron O'Toole. This is somebody who's nipping at the heels of Mr. Ma of Mr. McKay. And with a few missteps, mm -hmm. anything could happen in this race. We're still, you know, a number of months out. They've got until the end of February to get their applications together. Yeah and uh, then we'll really see who's running at that point. This is interesting because as the week ends, I mean, the week be began with a story being Peter McKay and ha not having a stellar week, uh, and the week ends with these rumors that are circulating about the potential for John Baird to launch a uh, candidacy 
Uh, there's been no confirmation or anything, and a lot of suggestions that he won't, but everyone's talking about it. What do you make of it, Bruce? So I think you know, part of what we're seeing from Peter McKay's kind of stumbling campaign is that, that I think he jumped in early, perhaps with hoping that the effect would kind of scare off some shock others. And, yeah, yeah you know, that, that, you know, that you know, I'm in, I'm the perceived front runner. Yeah. And I think he has surprised many because you know, between his previous leadership bid, you know, so he should know how these things go, and his years of experience as a, as a cabinet minister, mm -hmm. he kind of expected a more polished uh, view. And I think now we end the week with people maybe thinking that there's chinks in his armor, that, you know, that, that I think, as Michelle noted, that, that Aaron O'Toole is, I think, could prove yeah. to be a, a surprise in this campaign. And that people having seen Mr. McKay's performance could decide, you know what, I'm in, you know, mm -hmm. that, that he is not uh, uh, invulnerable. And a suggestion that there are significant forces within the party that don't want to see Peter McKay, for whatever reason, don't want to see Peter McKay as a leader. So there's sort of an any, anyone but Peter McKay movement uh, afoot or something like that. Yeah. Um, Teresa, quick question. We had something interesting because you were following it. Speaking of conservatives, Ron Ambrose tabled her bill. The, the bill that died on the order paper in the Senate has been reintroduced as a government bill. It's her bill for education, legal education for judges in sexual assault cases. It was tabled, and yet the conservatives, uh, there was an attempt to get it fast-tracked and send it immediately to the Senate again. Conservative MPs voted against it. What do you make of it, and do you think they will eventually come around to supporting her bill because it had multi-party support? It had multi-party support um, in the, you know, when she first introduced it as a private member's bill. Um, and, and all of the leaders of the parties had put it in their platform that they would, you know, yeah. they would move forward with this. And so it's, it's very surprising that the Conservatives would um, make a move that will, uh, they want to amend it, they want to, you know, extend training for members of the parole board for yeah. a completely separate issue. But it, what it would do is it, it could stall the bill again. And given the fact that she was the former interim uh, leader and they were clamoring not that long ago for her to run for leadership and mm -hmm. many thought that she would probably win if she did run, that they would be, you know, doing something like this that could, you know, block the bill or, or put up roadblocks to the bill, it's, it's just surprising. Do you think there's a possibility that they'll just let the smoke clear and then once they've tried to make their point that we wanted to see parole officers and our motion this week included and then maybe in a few weeks time we'll see them quietly coming back on board to support it? I mean, I'm, they I'm, they I'm, haven't said that they're against the bill. They just no, didn't. they're not against the bill. Yeah. They just they want to add to it. Yeah. Um, I, I guess well, it's been it's going to go to committee. So mm -hmm. you know maybe there's something that can be worked out there that they can have the concerns about the parole board addressed in a different way. I'm, I would be surprised if people wouldn't try to push for that so that mm -hmm. we can try to you know you know separate the two issues mm -hmm. out and let Rana's bill pass. Okay. On that note, I want to thank you. And something tells me we'll probably be talking about conservative leadership races in future panels. But I want to thank all three for coming in. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks. Well, that's all for another edition of Primetime Politics on CPAC, the cable public affairs channel. I'm Martin Stringer. On behalf of all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching and have a great weekend.